Greetings. We offer these podcasts freely, and your support really makes a difference. To make a donation, please visit tarbrock.com. Namaste, welcome. What follows is an interview I did with Dr. Dan Siegel. Many of you have heard of him. It focuses on his new book, Intra-Connected. And I had intended this to be a one-podcast session, but we got so into the content that it became too long, too full. So I'm going to offer it to you in two parts. And I just want to say in advance, I learned a lot. I found a lot of inspiration in this conversation. And I trust you will as well. Okay, friends, enjoy. Namaste. Welcome, friends. Thank you so much for joining us. So before introducing my esteemed and beloved guest today, Dan Siegel, I'd like to make some opening remarks just setting a context for our conversation. And the big picture, in a sense, is the core reflection, really, in most contemplative and wisdom traditions is, who am I? Or what am I? could be either. And these traditions teach that our evolutionary pathway, our pathway of unfolding is to widen our sense of identity from a limiting sense of a separate self to really discovering our shared belonging with all of life, you know, our our shared source in loving awareness. And Dan's new book, Intra-Connected, I want to make sure I say that right, is a deep dive into how we form limiting identity and how we wake up to the truth of who we are. You know, it's this core teaching here. And it draws on an overlap of a number of streams of knowledge. It's really rich with Western science and contemplative indigenous wisdom and more. Uh, What are called consilient truths. Uh, It's a term I didn't know of until Dan introduced it. So my friends, this is powerful, life-changing stuff. And it's what transformation is all about. So by way of introducing Dan, Dan's a psychiatrist and an educator. He's an amazingly prolific author. I cannot believe how much comes out of him. He's the executive director of Mindsight Institute. And Mindsight's both the name of a book that's also amazing. And also it's a term that really is groundbreaking understanding on how to pay attention. Personally, my experience of Dan is he's got a really creative kind of brilliance in the sense he can offer models that help us understand complex stuff, complex science, and really point to the nature of reality. So I'll also say beyond all this, he's a uh, deeply good, loving, caring, generous being. So, So welcome, Dan, my friend. Thank you for joining us. Well, Tara, thank you for having me, and it's thank you for those beautiful words. Uh, it's a joy to be with you, and um, I'm looking forward to our, our conversation. Thank you so yeah. much. 
Uh, well, okay. So there is an anonymous saying that goes, I've lost my train of thought. Oh, how nice, you know, <laughs> and which I love. And you have a comparable and it's a personal story years back. And it's really, it's at the beginning of your book. And I loved it. It takes place in Mexico where you lost your sense of identity. And I kind of wanted to start there to have you share the story and also how you now understand what happened. Yeah. Well, I was just about to turn 20. Uh, so I was still in college. And I was working for the World Health Organization, studying uh, folk healers in Mexico. And I was on a journey on, on horseback up to see the queen of the mushrooms in the state of Oaxaca in a town called Huautla. And um, the saddle on the horse uh, that I was on got loose at a full gallop and slipped to the horse's belly and my feet stayed in the stirrups. So my two colleagues who I was with tell me afterwards, the horse ran faster and faster with my head being dragged along the rocks. And while they were watching this, they said to me later, they thought I had died because it was such a terrible accident. And then when they came upon me on their own horses, they heard me moaning. So they figured I'd broken my neck. But besides breaking all the bones of my face, I broke my identity. I didn't know who I was and I didn't have much language. So when they brought me back to the hospital and I was put in this recovery room, um, you know, they would bring me things like liquid in a, we wouldn't, what I would now call a glass. And it was hilarious. I mean, the water would be shimmering and the glass would feel smooth. And I was just laughing a lot, even though I had these broken bones. And it was amazing to just be fully aware and awake. But now I would say, you know, have no filters certainly of identity, I didn't know who I was, but also of language that while it's useful, for example, we're talking now, can limit us. So there it was like this freedom of just being present with whatever was arising. And it was filled with love and joy and kind of this fascination. And uh, so, you know, I have, and at that moment had um, uh, an addicted relative whose addiction was really destroying his life. And so I had developed a psychological aversion to any kind of substances that altered your state of mind because I saw what it did to him. Uh, so it wasn't a moral statement. It was just a psychological aversion. So for me, I had never had an experience of altering consciousness like that. So in a way, it was my own version of getting stoned, being dragged across the stones. And um, afterwards, you know, after about 24 hours, my identity came back. People said, oh, you're Dan. I said, yeah, now I realized what they were saying. It sank in and held. This is a body called Dan. But after that, things were just different. Like the, when people refer to me or at that time I was applying to medical school, you know, and I have to use this name, Dan Siegel, you know, and it was like, it was always like a little joke, but I thought maybe it was like a head injury or maybe it was like, some kind of existential crisis I was in that there was this shift in not taking things so personally, but yet kind of being more um, light about it, more clear about it. And I just kind of forgot about that, went on, you know, to train in different, you know, aspects of medicine and psychiatry. Um, but years later, uh, it would, it would come up um, that this might be actually something to look at what it really meant in my life. And in writing Interconnected, it became 
you know, a starting place to say, well, if a knock on the head can knock out the narrative way that we create a separate identity, you're Tara, I'm Dan, that kind of thing, then what does it mean, for example, about our lives that in fact, we don't realize it's constructed or what could have happened in the brain? Because I wasn't meditating, right? I wasn't doing some deep contemplative practice. I was just having my head knocked on the ground. So something was disturbed in neural functioning. So what was it? And we'd later learn, we can get into this, what the particular networks are that create a narrative self and how they come to believe their own story. And in that belief, they come to filter experience. So you only perceive what you believe. Uh, and then you're kind of stuck in this, in quotes, but not really a pun, but a serious issue, self-reinforcing loop that reinforces the separate self, you know, or the solo self, thinking the self is only in the body. So in writing Interconnected, there were a whole bunch of things that that story uh, fit into, you know, how contemplative traditions, like the beautiful ways you teach about contemplative wisdom, or how indigenous teachings teach about making sure we don't fall prey to this vulnerability to think we're separate, but realize we're not only a part of each other in community, but we are all of nature. Um, and, and so the book was really an attempt to say, you know, where humanity has gone in modern culture is believing the lie of the separate self. And how can we build on the ancient invitation from indigenous wisdom, from contemplative teachings, and now could science add even something small uh, to an ancient invitation, but there's a new urgency that business as usual hasn't worked. And maybe this separate self is actually the kind of splinter in the soul of the psyche of modern society where we are limping through life because we are believing the lie of the separate self. Mm, that, that phrase splinter, <laughs> you know, feeling it as a splinter that it's, um, it's like we're supposed to feel it. It's part of the design of our being. And we're supposed to realize that that's not the end of the story. <laughs> you know, there's there's more. Yeah. Now, what I really am interested in with the word intraconnected, because clearly the word interconnected didn't quite do it. So tell us a little bit more, because a lot of people talk about interdependence and interconnected, but what is intraconnected? How does that further distinguish? Yeah, well, it, you know, the first thing to start with is, you know, there's always a, um, a context in which things emerge. So I should say that, you know, for those of you who are listening, you know, as an audio thing, I live in a, a white skinned body as a male, heterosexual, cisgender person who's educated in a white dominant world called the United States of America you know, the position of this privilege that that this body has had will make it so I have a lot of blind spots, even for my own blind spots. And I want to just say that because I'll, I'll, I'll speak about this word, but it has to be done, I think, recognizing, you know, where does it come from? So that's the first thing to start with. The second thing is, before this word came out, uh, a wonderful... Um, uh, religious leader, Ed Bacon, asked me to go with 50 religious leaders. And I'm a scientist, you know, so I said, Ed, what, what are you doing? He goes, this will be good. Come, please come. So I said, okay, okay. So we got in a bus and we went to a, a forest in Utah called Pando Populus. 
And Pando is the word for the quaking aspen tree. And in this grove, this beautiful forest, there's about 48,000 what look like independent quaking aspen trees, you know? And it's beautiful, beautiful. But when you hear from the naturalist who's there that if you go six inches beneath the surface, you find a common root ball. Um, they had me do this practice that, you know, this wheel of awareness uh, thing that you integrate consciousness. We can talk about that later. But, but they had me do it in the forest. And the naturalist goes, oh, my God, that's exactly what Pando is. He goes, when you get in the hub of that wheel. And it was, and he had never meditated before, you know, so it was like, wow. And then all these religious leaders are doing it. We're, we get in this conversation that when the, you test the DNA of the trees, it's the same tree. It's one of the oldest and largest living organisms on earth. So the feeling in this body with all these religious leaders um, was, could science add to the religious wisdom that we need to open to something where we may on the surface see separation, but actually just beneath the surface, there's deep unity, there's deep connection while there's also differentiation. So literally right after that, I went to Colorado from Utah and I was doing some work with some people from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, Peter Senge, Metabol, studying systems. And we were trying to work on how do you study, you know, this notion that there are relational fields. So just like Michael Faraday had talked about, you know, electromagnetic fields and people thought he was out of his mind, you know, the notion from systems thinking that Otto Scharmer and Peter Senge and others, Metabol, are proposing is that there are these fields. Now, we don't know how to measure them but you can feel them when you go into a room. So we decided as a group to take ourselves on a retreat. And we went to, to Colorado to a place where John P. Milton runs this thing called the Way of Nature, where for 20,000 years, there's evidence from the stone sitting places that people have been meditating, mm. 20,000 years. Mm. Mm. So we go there and we each are by ourselves in quotes in the forest for three days. And we come out uh, and everyone is sharing their experience. And we're going around the circle in the forest and people said I was interconnected, interdependent. They used Thich Nhat Hanh's beautiful word, interbeing. I was interlaced. I was interwoven. And then it came time for this body, this body called Dan, to talk. And, you know, I'm a little bit of a stickler for words. So I said, you know, I resonate with everything that's being said. It's so beautiful to see we had similar experiences, though we were, quote, separate. I said, but I can't use the word inter because it means between. Mm -hmm. And the experience of this body was that. I was the creek. I was the sky. I was the trees. I was the body called Dan. I was all of it. And there was a withinness to it that was all connected. Yeah. So I guess I would, hmm, I would, um, I would say uh, I was intra-connected. And then everyone's like nodding their heads. And we went back to the place we were staying. And I got out my computer. I started typing in, well, this was an amazing experience. I, you know, this creek, the trees, the sky, the body. I was interconnected and the computer kept on changing it back to interconnected. And I said, what, what's going on with my computer? And I looked it up. There was no word in English like intra-connected. And we don't really have a word for the connectivity that speaks from the perspective of the whole. So, so then I thought, okay, I had already been using a word called MWE, M-W-E, because I had taught a class called Me to We. And one of my students got really mad and she said, you're a hypocrite, you know, you're saying get rid of me and go to we. I said, that's not what I mean. It's, it's me and we. It's like they're together. You know, you have a body. You want to take care of your body, be aware of your body, enjoy your body. 
uh, know the history of your body and but go beyond the body and realize you're also relational so she said well what are you going to say i said well not only me but also we she goes that's clunky so then i said okay well if you integrate them you don't lose the differentiated nature maybe it's me plus we is we and so that word i was already kind of using and people felt liberated by the word so interconnected became you know a way to introduce seeing from the whole not just i'm a part that's connected to other parts of the whole but how do you actually see as the whole mm. I love it. And I have to say, when I read about Panda, those aspen trees, what it made me think of is that the earth is our common root ball, you know, that we're all coming from earth. And then I went kind of back further and just kind of sensed, you know, even the Big Bang, you know, like the entire universe came out of the same root ball. And that there's something about, uh, for me, when I, experience intra connection that allows uh, the sense of the whole universe's body to be you know filling my body so it's like there really is a sense of being part of the whole and also having the sense of the whole is what i am including the parts so it um yeah. it has a more full truth to it and what i was wondering if you'd go into just a little bit more right now, because I have a fascination with it, is how quantum physics um, really points to this same experience that, you know, there's a whole field of relational quantum physics now that you just can't speak about anything. You can't speak about anything that you think is manifested without talking about the observer and that anything that's manifested is an interaction of quantum particles and that it's all coming from the same field. So I want to put it in your hands because I uh, have a very shallow understanding and it's so interesting to me. Well, I think you have a very deep understanding of truth and maybe the physics aspect. It's <laughs> a little to, flaky. To... I want to honor that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so let me just start with a comment that I will absolutely address your question, which I think is a fascinating one. And, and I'll even present a framework that is a hypothesis. But I want to say from the very beginning, the hypothesis might be completely wrong. Uh, it might be partly true, and it might be true. I just want to start with that because, you know, when I've been asked to address this question in different settings, including with scientists, you know, I literally, Tara, had them chase me down the hallway saying, don't speak like that. I said, I'm saying from a conciliant point of view, you know, where you, as E.O. Wilson's book, Conciliant suggests, you know, you look at different disciplines and see if they've come to similar conclusions mm -hmm. independently. Mm -hmm. And then you can say, wow, if human beings pursuing the nature of reality in their own independent ways have come in contemplation and indigenous teachings and even the various disciplines of empirical science like quantum physics or like anthropology and bringing them all together in this framework that I work in called interpersonal neurobiology, then maybe there's some truth to it. Maybe not, but maybe. So, so you wanna do what Adam Grant says, which is think again, always challenge yourself and challenge yourself and never assume that you're right, but always present it, see if there's a lot of consilience to support it and move forward. So with that as a provision, knowing that 
someone will probably chase me down the hallway when they listen <laughs> to our conversation. Um, I will go forward. <laughs> um, but here's here's the the um, step by step, I think, way to think about it, which is if you're listening to Tara and to me, you likely live in a body that we can assume. And the body is of a certain size, meaning it's an accumulation of atoms which accumulate into molecules, which form different things like cells, which accumulate into different systems in the body. And you have a body. So it's bigger than, let's say, an atom. So when something's big, let's call it a macro for big state. It's a state of whatever reality that's big. Now, 350 years ago, Isaac Newton um, started figuring out these equations that could predict the behavior of large objects. And, you know, he didn't call them large objects, but he was talking about planets and moons and apples falling from trees. An apple is big compared to an atom, right? So that form of physics, which is basically a set of equations that talks about how reality works, is 350 years old. And those equations are accurate. When you get in your car and you press on the brakes, some wonderful engineer, and hopefully it's now a non-polluting car, you know, some wonderful engineer figured out, I'm going to put a person in this car. And when they press on their big foot on that big brake, the car, the big object will stop. And you want a Newtonian physics is what it's called, based thing that operates on the Newtonian macro state level. It's all good, fine. Now, a hundred years ago, technology advanced so they could start studying smaller things than an atom. What's smaller than an atom? An electron, a photon, just as name two. And what are those things? Those things, this is gonna sound weird, they're units of energy. So as, as life would have it, a long time ago, I was asked to go to a conference on spirituality and science. And, you know, I'm trained in science, but I don't really think of myself as trained in spirituality, but I was just beginning to, you know, get exposed to these things. So I guess that's why they invited me. Anyway, there are 150 physicists, many of them trained in quantum physics. And I had already written years before that, that the mind could be an emergent property of energy. And this energy was flowing inside your body, including your brain, but it was flowing in your relationships with people or, or in nature, right? So here I was with all these physics folks, and I would just drill down on them between, you know, talks, uh, what is energy? And also ask the question, because we had time, what is time? And what I learned was mind-blowing. They said, energy is the movement from possibility to actuality. And I went, what? And they go, that's all it is from possibility to actuality. And I had already been collecting this data from doing the wheel of awareness with people where the hub of this metaphoric wheel was pure awareness. The rim was the thing you were aware of and you can move a metaphoric spoke, a singular spoke around to basically different energy patterns from outside the body, we call our five senses. Inside the body, we call the body sense. You know, thoughts, emotions, memories, it's probably head brain activity. And then trying to feel the relational fields our connection relationship sensation. Uh, and so you do that. And then I would have people bend the spoke into the hub. And when they got into the hub, amazing things would happen, whether they had never meditated before or they're meditation teachers, you know, they would say things like time disappeared or 
It was empty but full. I was just present. As one parliamentarian who never meditated before said, I felt so much love. I was connected to everyone and everything. And he was crying. And all of these things kept on happening. So I was doing it with hundreds and then thousands. And then before the viral pandemic, I did it with 50,000 people. And I would record when people take the microphone, their results. So I said to these phys physicists, this was early on in that survey, I said, well, let me draw this out for you and tell me if this is what you mean. And what they mean is that if you draw it as a diagram, what you see is that at the bottom, let's say there were a million words, Tara, you and I share. And right now I'm gonna say one of them. Your chance of guessing that, of the pool of all things that could be, the potential things, is one out of a million. So the physicists call that near zero. So if you draw it out in a graph, let's call that a plane of possibility. All potentialities, all possibilities are sitting there before they arise from that plane up to various degrees of probability that kind of filter things out. Like if I say, Tara, I'm going to say one of the five named oceans. So we'd have like this plateau where there are only five things there, not the million. And now you might guess Atlantic Ocean or Indian Ocean or Pacific Ocean, you know, and when it arises, when I say Pacific Ocean, it becomes a peak, it becomes an actuality. Okay, so I graph this out for the physicists. They say, we don't have that graph, but yeah, that's, that's what we mean by the movement for possible actuality. So I said, that's cool. So then I started trying to fit the survey data from the Wheel of Awareness onto this map that the physicists had vetted. And I said, it looks like a thought or an emotion or a memory is like a peak. Just beneath that peak is emoting and remembering and thinking. And then even beneath that would be like a plateau that's filtering what you emote with or think with or remember. And that would be like a state of mind or intention or a mood. And then I kept on looking at the data. What in the world is the reason people are saying love and connection, empty but full? What's that? So I looked at all the brain science I could find on consciousness and nothing really correlated with that. So I went to physics, and this is what my neuroscience colleagues run down the hall and say, why are you leaving neuroscience? I said, I'm not leaving neuroscience. I'm just expanding to all ways of knowing. Say, why are people saying this first-person experiences? I have scientific data from 50,000 people. You know, that's data. I can't ignore it as a scientist. They said, well, you don't need to go to physics. I said, but the brain science doesn't cut it, not at least at this moment. But when I go to physics, here's what we find, not just me going to physics, when, I, when you open up to the physicist. So what they say is this, that 100 years ago, quantum physics came up with other equations that were even more accurate. So they're really, really useful than the Newtonian ones. But the realm in which they are most apparent is with microstates, small things. Now, what that means is this plane of possibility we're talking about, those the example of the million words, that would be considered the quantum vacuum, which is also called by Arthur Zions, who's a quantum physicist who used to be the president of mind and life. You know, he calls it the sea of potential. And this is a physics term from Arthur. It's not poetry, but it is poetic. The formless source of all form. And then when he said that, as he was at that meeting, I went, oh my gosh, that's why they're saying it's empty but full. It's full of possibility, but empty of form. And then, you know, I'm an acronym nut. I had been teaching with a dear friend of mine who's, you know, whose body is no longer with us, John O'Donnell, who was an Irish Catholic priest. 
And I realized this plane of possibility is the generator of diversity. And if you make an acronym out of that, it's the G-O-D. So then I thought, oh my gosh. So I started teaching with people from the Christian tradition, the Jewish tradition, the Islamic tradition, the Hindu tradition, with their view of God. So far, at least the people I've had a chance to teach with, the 50 people on the bus, for example, all different religions represented, they loved it. They didn't see it as sacrilegious. They thought it was a bridge between science and spirituality. So here's the hypothesis. Awareness comes when the energy position is in the plane of possibility. And what that means is that it's empty of form, but full of possibility. There's this other acronym, COAL, that you can use in this way. It's about connection, the C, open awareness, the OA, and love. Over and over again, people are saying love as if love and connection are the threads of a singular tapestry of reality. So then you say, well, how do we work with this? And it's almost as if, you know, if we go swimming in the lake and we know what the properties are of being in the water, and then we get out of the lake and now we're walking on the shore and there's a different set of properties, you know, we have one reality, water and land. No one freaks out. But here's the proposal from physics. There are two realms of our one reality, at least two realms. There's the macro state realm that Newton talked about and the micro state realm that quantum physics has discovered. So someone once you know, did the wheel, they got in the hub, they got where basically in the quantum realm, there's no time. And in fact, the Nobel prize was given this year for what's called non-locality that in Newtonian terms, yes, we have physical separation, but in the quantum realm, which is equally real, just different realms of one reality, then space and time don't separate us. Now, when you start sitting with that, someone was hearing all this, they did the wheel, they said, come to England, do the wheel of awareness around the apple tree where Newton figured out gravity from it. And we did that and a documentary filmmaker came and we made a little TV documentary doing the wheel of awareness around the apple tree, just paying homage to Sir Isaac Newton saying, it's not like that's wrong. I mean, if after you listen to Tara and, and me here, make sure that when you are driving your car, riding your bicycle and you come to a red light at an intersection, use your Newtonian macro state body, press on the brakes, stop, or you will become one with everything in the intersection. So you really want to acknowledge we have these realms. It's in many ways parallel to the relativistic realm that in Buddhism is beautifully talked about versus the universal. It maps on beautifully in a conciliant way. Also to Moi, because the me is the Newtonian. It's like, yeah. this is the conventional reality. And you're not saying get rid of the sense of self. You're saying there's something larger and more formless and more perhaps essential or comes before a priori. Exactly. Yeah. Oh. And that's that's the fun thing, I think, about doing consilience is you say, yes, Buddhism has been teaching this. Yes, contemplative traditions of all sorts have been teaching this. Yes, indigenous teachings have been teaching it. Now science can join those ancient thousands of year old discussions and say, maybe we can add a teeny bit to ancient wisdom. Well, in a way, science, the metaphor of science is, we're more um, receptive to it often in the West. So it's often the inroad for people in terms of contemplative experience to have it validated in some way by a model that makes sense to their brain. 
but you, you're, I love consilience and I actually feel a better understanding now of its power where you sense what's in common between the different traditions. And that gives you much more of a pointer, brings things to the much more probability of what's going to reflect reality than just a possibility. Exactly. Exactly. And then, and sometimes in that consilience, you get really interesting insights that you didn't predict. For example, as a, as a therapist, you know, I work with people who've been traumatized and sometimes meditation is really hard for them, you know, and, and sometimes going into open awareness really creates a panicky feeling. So when you look at the graph, you realize that what this graph tells us is that maximal uncertainty is in pure awareness. If you just look at that graph and then you go, well, if you've been traumatized, the last thing you want is mm -hmm. uncertainty. So mm -hmm. you construct these plateaus, for example, of a separate self or a way of defending yourself from someone who's going to hurt you. And the sad part about that constructed plateau, plateaus are fine. Like if you're going to learn to swim or play tennis or drive a car, you need a plateau of skills. That's all good. But if the plateau is rigid and imprisoning you, then it becomes like this, this trap. So in the work with people who are traumatized in this framework, what's become really interesting is to be able to articulate um, the fear of uncertainty has kept them locked in the prison of post-traumatic adaptations. So we do gentle, careful work to just dip their toes in that plane of possibility, pull back out, dip their toes in. And then at some point, they let go of the plateau of a separate identity can feel at first what can feel overwhelming. So it has a sense of awe, but it can be awful in the sense of terrifying, or it can be awesome if you bring the support to then let them in a way, stop feeling like they have to be acting like a noun, a fixed entity, but open up to the verb-like nature of life. And then through the plane of possibility, here's the amazing thing. Instead of being terrified of uncertainty in that journey of healing, they come to realize that the synonyms for uncertainty are freedom and possibility. And then doing a meditation practice of whatever sort, I mean, we have the wheel, but I think it's consilient with lots of different approaches. You know, what you want to do is allow yourself to enter this spaciousness that you beautifully talk about, Tara, in, in so many of your meditations, where that love that is there I can't explain why as a scientist, but I can just describe it as the reported finding that in pure awareness, the love is there. So in the prison that they had of a plateau, they had to construct, they're very alone. Then through the wheel of awareness or other practices where they can get comfortable uncertainty, they start letting the love live through them. Mm. And it's this incredible liberation. You know, I love that you're you're actually grounding this and how do you go from being traumatized and on a plateau encased in the defended self-protected kind of self to that uh, open awareness to the uncertainty and that formless field. And one of the things I've discovered again and again is that the flavors of that field still have tendrils, still filter into the plateaued states. And what I mean by that is you can be traumatized and protecting yourself, but still have a taste of what it's like to feel safe in another person's arms, mm. or still have a taste of what it's like to, to feel a tree and sense that there's some affinity with the tree. 
And so that if you're in that plateaued state and protecting against uncertainty, to intentionally call on the tendrils that come from the awareness itself of feeling love, of feeling connection, our gratitude, our wonder, they're all flavors that come from that formless space, actually make it safe enough to begin to dip the toe and touch into the uncertainty in a way you have more of a field to hold it in. So I, I love yeah. the model that you're offering. And the other thing that struck me with consilience is many years ago, I heard a, a kind of a teaching from indigenous elders about how we're co-dreaming the universe into reality, into manifesting. And that what many people report, and I've experienced myself and I'm sure you have, is that when there's more resting in or a sensing of that whole, of that empty but alive kind of wholeness, then there's more possibility of intending from a sense of what you care about, what's good, what's beautiful, intending to uh, manifest something. You have more yeah. capacity to call on that possibility in an intentional way to keep evolving. And you, and in a way, you're co-dreaming the universe into creation from your intention because you're resting more in that formless space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from a um, practical point of view in terms of how one lives one's life, or if you're working as a client or patient doing therapy, or you're the therapist, or you're a teacher, or you're a parent, you know, this practical aspect of what you're saying, from the science perspective, in terms of wording it, is you might say something like, you know, number one, there are two realms that quantum physics has established. The big controversy that people chase me down the hall with is, does this relate to mental experience? Like, feelings or consciousness or thoughts. Um, and that's what the scientists are pushing back. They're saying, why are you relating quantum physics to the mind? I said, well, why not? It's one reality. And it, especially if the mind is an emergent property of energy, why not turn to the science of energy? So that's that. But what it tells us is that just to compare these two realms is that when you're raising a child or you're working hard in therapy or just a citizen on earth, in your Newtonian manifestation, you know a couple of things exist. The separation across space, it exists, it's true. The separation across what we call time, there's a directionality of change called the arrow of time that in some physics views only exists in the Newtonian realm. In the Newtonian realm, there are entities that are noun-like things that we can hold, a body, we can hold a tennis racket, we can hold um, you know, uh, this fixed-like thing. But if we compare all that in the Newtonian macro state realm to the quantum realm, which is part of the one reality we live in, then we start realizing, number one, there are no nouns. There are no entities. There are just verb-like unfoldings. Even an electron and a photon are called probability fields, you know? And those fields have a whole set of processing dimensionality to them. They're not entities you can hold until, as the study shows, you know, you observe them, then they go from this wide range of possibilities into a particle. And that's something we can talk about, but that's the observer effect, you know, that's a fascinating issue that hasn't been resolved, why that happens, but that's kind of a part of what you're talking about. But the second thing is that 
you know, because of non-locality, things that in Newtonian body form, we would say, oh, they're separated, have now been proven. The Nobel Prize given for this. Mm -hmm. In 2015, a paper called Closing the Final Loophole was published in a very established, peer-reviewed, rigorous uh, physics journal saying, it's no longer a question that at the level of the quantum realm, something that in the Newtonian terms, we would say is you know 5,000 miles away can instantaneously influence something that it's been entangled with or coupled with. Even stars across light years away have been shown to have entanglement. So- Isn't everything that, entangled coming from the same big bang, so to speak? Well, you could say that, yeah. And, and the thing is, you know, from a mental side, you know, I've, I've asked people like, have you had a communication or some signal from a human being who's at least physically separated from you that was so specific, you know, it couldn't have been a coincidence. And about 85% of people say yes. Now, when I was saying this recently to a bunch of computer scientists on a trip I was on, they pushed back and say, Isaac Asimov would speak up if he was alive and he would say, you're wrong. That's not some entanglement and the mind experience it. It's just pure coincidence that all the times you think you're communicating with someone far away that don't happen and the few times it does are significant because you think it's something real it's just a coincidence so i want to honor their pushback and at the same time when you hear the specifics of stuff that i myself have experienced but other people actually describe it is so specific you can't even imagine how that specific image of something happening to someone you love and it doesn't happen to people you don't love. This is the thing that's interesting. So in terms of this question, is everything entangled? Perhaps it is on some level. They're and a matter the, of degrees. It's a matter degrees. of degrees. And so yeah. when you really are in a relationship with someone, it may be that what that means is your energy fields have become coupled with each other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that may be what love is. And maybe that what you're describing earlier, when you drop into that open presence, which why this open awareness, this hub of the wheel in that metaphor, why love is the thing i don't know but it's like a linking and maybe love from a scientific point of view really means linking so when you're really love connected to someone when you're linked with someone you're entangled and then at the realm of the quantum experience if this is true because it could be wrong i want to just emphasize that so no one chases me down a hallway <laughs> but if it's right what it means is that you know you have these resonating experiences across spatial separation and then the time business is amazing. And, you know, when you do just an exercise of from the Big Bang, you know, 13 billion years ago to now, one way of describing it is a kind of space of possibility, which was what reality was. And then once that space had this Big Bang experience, things start emerging from possibility into actualities that we call matter. And then as the matter distributed itself in Newtonian terms across what we call space, then you get the realm of Newtonian where things are really huge expanses. And I know you went your son once in, uh, to you know, the cosmic journey. And so you see this Newtonian space, but in the realm of the quantum experience, which maybe awareness really is resting in, then it's all connected, like you're saying. And so you can feel your identity. I, I talk about it in the book uh, as an identity lens. You could say, yes, I have a body. And if I widen that identity lens across space, I'm all living beings. And then if I widen it even further, 
I'm all of reality. And if I widen even further, I'm across space. I'm into what in Newtonian terms we call the past, in Newtonian terms we call the future. But in the quantum realm, there's no directionality of change. So there's no time variable in those equations. So then you go, whoa, I'm just on this journey of being. And you go, yeah. And if I drop into awareness, I actually can free myself up from the Newtonian. It's an illusion only if it believes it's the whole story. Because you do have a body. So we say the illusion of the separate self, meaning the illusion that the separate, the vision of a solo self is the only source of your, I, I call it a spa, you know, your sensation, perspective, and agency is one way of defining what the self is. So you then take this identity lens and you hugely expand your sensation, perspective, and agency in and out. And then life becomes like this incredibly exciting journey of love. You know, that this is so beautiful. And I just want to say, if you're listening, you know you're going to listen about three times <laughs> or more. Um, it made me think of my favorite quote in the world when you talked about expanding outward, but also sensing the interior space. And that is that uh, Sri Narsargadatta says, love tells me I'm everything and wisdom tells me I'm no thing. And between the two, my life flow. And my experience is that when we're um, resting in awareness, it's not until we sense the manifestation, the Newtonian world come into place, that, that the love is expressed. Mm. That's where it's expressed in the relational field that comes, you know, through the manifestation that we both can feel our connection, but we can also feel our connection to all the trees and to all of space and we're everything and it's all a part of us. And then when we go inward and it's not really inward because there's no in and out, but when we sense the uh, interior space, that formless field of possibility, there's no thingness there. So there is that sense of that emptiness and utter openness and they're inextricable. Thank you, friends, for listening. This is the end of part one of this conversation. And I hope you'll stay tuned and join us again for the second part. Okay, many blessings. For more talks and meditations, and to learn about my schedule or join my email list, please visit tarabrock.com.